Chapter Eleven, Part Two of the Sea. Its stirring story of adventure, peril, and heroism. Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Florence Short. The Sea. Its stirring story of adventure, peril, and heroism. Volume One by frederick wimper chapter eleven round the world on a man-of-war continued from the horn to halifax part two havana is a very gay city and has some special attractions for the sailor among others being its good cigars and cheap spanish wine and fruits its greatest glory is the paseo its hyde park Guadabalone, corso cassini alameda where the cuban bells and bows delight to promenade and ride there will you see them in bright colored picturesque attire sadly europeanized and americanized of late though seated in the volant a kind of hanging cabriolet between two large wheels drawn by one or two horses on one of which the negro servant with enormous leggings white breeches red jacket and gold lace and broad-brimmed straw hat rides the volant is itself bright with polished metal and the whole turnout has an air of barbaric splendor these carriages are never kept in a coach-house but are usually placed in the halls and often even in the dining-room as a child's perambulator might with us havana has an ugly cathedral and a magnificent opera-house slave labor is common and many of the sugar and tobacco planters are very wealthy properties of many hundred acres under cultivation are common mr trollope found the negroes well fed sleek and fat as brewers horses while no sign of ill usage came before him in crop times they sometimes work sixteen hours a day and sunday is not then a day of rest for them there are many chinese coolies also on the island kingsley speaking of the islands in general says that he was altogether unprepared for their beauty and grandeur day after day the steamer took him past a shifting diorama of scenery which he likened to vesuvius and naples repeated again and again with every possible variation of the same type of delicate loveliness under a cloudless sky and over the blue waters banks of light cloud turned to violet and then to green and then disclosed grand mountains with the surf beating white around the base of tall cliffs and isolated rocks and the pretty country houses of settlers embowered in foliage and gay little villages and busy towns it was easy says that charming writer in presence of such scenery to conceive the exaltation which possessed the souls of the first discoverers of the west indies what wonder if they seemed to themselves to have burst into fairyland to be at the gates of the earthly paradise with such a climate such a soil such vegetation such fruits what luxury must not have seemed possible to the dwellers along those shores what riches too of gold and jewels might not be hidden among those forest shrouded glens and peaks and beyond and beyond again ever new islands new continents perhaps an inexhaustible wealth of yet undiscovered worlds the resemblance to mediterranean or 
more especially neapolitan scenery is very marked like causes have produced like effects and each island is little but the peak of a volcano down whose shoulders lava and ash have slidden toward the sea many carry several cones one of them a little island named saba has a most remarkable settlement halfway up a volcano saba rises sheer out of the sea one thousand five hundred or more feet and from a little landing-place a stair runs up eight hundred feet into the very bosom of the mountain where in a hollow live some one thousand two hundred honest dutchmen and eight hundred negroes the latter were till of late years not only the slaves of the former but it is said that in reality it was just the other way the blacks went off when and whither they pleased earned money on other islands and expected their masters to keep them when they were out of work the good dutch lived peaceably aloft in their volcano grow garden crops and sell them to vessels or to surrounding islands they build the best boats in the west indies up in their crater and lower them down the cliff to the sea they are excellent sailors and good christians long may their volcano remain quiescent when the steamer stops at some little port or even single settlement the negro boats come alongside with luscious fruit and vegetables bananas and green oranges the sweet sop a fruit which looks like a strawberry and is as big as an orange the custard apples the pulp of which those who have read tom kringle's log will remember is fancied to have an unpleasant resemblance to brains the avocado or alligator pears otherwise called midshipman's butter which are eaten with pepper and salt scarlet capsicums green and orange coconuts roots of yam and cush-cush help to make up baskets as varied in color as the gaudy gowns and turbans of the women neither must the junks of sugar-cane be omitted which the colored gentlemen and ladies delight to gnaw walking sitting and standing increasing thereby the size of their lips and breaking out often enough their upper front teeth rude health is in their faces their cheeks literally shine with fatness but in this happy archipelago there are drawbacks in the guadalupe earthquake of eighteen forty three five thousand persons lost their lives in the one town of puerto petra alone the sufria ray volcano five thousand feet high rears many a peak to the skies and shows an ugly and uncertain humor smoking and flaming the writer so often quoted gives a wonderfully beautiful description of this mountain and its surroundings as the sun rose level lights of golden green streamed round the peak right and left over the downs but only for a while as the sky clouds vanished in his blazing rays earth clouds rolled up from the valleys behind wreathed and weltered about the great black teeth of the crater and then sinking among them and below them shrouded the whole cone in purple darkness for the day while in the foreground blazed in the sunshine broad slopes of cane-field below them again the town the port of bastere with handsome houses and old-fashioned churches and convents dating possibly from the seventeenth century embowered in mangoes tamarinds and palmists 
and along the beach a market beneath a row of trees with canoes drawn up to be unladen and gay dresses of every hue the surf whispered softly on the beach the cheerful murmur of voices came off the shore and above it the tinkling of some little bell calling good folks to early mass a cheery brilliant picture as man could wish to see but marred by two ugly elements a mile away on the low northern cliff marked with many a cross was the lonely cholera cemetery a remembrance of the fearful pestilence which a few years since swept away thousands of the people and above frowned that black giant now asleep but for how long the richness of the verdure which clothes these islands to their highest peaks seems a mere coat of green fur and yet as often gigantic forest trees the eye wanders over the green abysses and strains over the wealth of depths and heights compared with which fine english parks are mere shrubberies there is every conceivable green or rather of hues ranging from pale yellow through all greens into cobalt and as the wind stirs the leaves and sweeps the lights and shadows over hill and glen all is ever-changing iridescent like a peacock's tail till the whole island from peak to shore seems some glorious jewel in emerald with tints of sapphire and topaz hanging between blue sea and white surf below and blue sky and white cloud above and yet over all this beauty dark shadows hang the shadow of war and the shadow of slavery these seas have been oft reddened with the blood of gallant sailors and every other gully holds the skeleton of an englishman here it was that rodney broke de grasse's line took and destroyed seven french ships of war and scattered the rest saving jamaica and in sooth the whole west indies and bringing about the honourable peace of seventeen eighty three yon lovely roadstead of dominica there rodney caught up with the french just before and would have beaten them so much the earlier but for his vessels being becalmed in that deep bay at martinique now lined with gay houses was for many years the cul-de-sac royal the rendezvous and stronghold of the french fleet that isolated rock hard by much the shape and double the size of the great pyramids is sir samuel hood's famous diamond rock to which that brave old navigator literally tied with a hawser or two his ship the centaur and turned the rock into a fortress from whence to sweep the seas the rock was for several months rated on the books of the admiralty as his majesty's ship diamond rock she had at last to surrender for want of powder to an overwhelming force two seventy fours and fourteen smaller ships of war but did not give in till seventy poor frenchmen were lying killed or wounded and three of their gunboats destroyed her own loss being only two men killed and one wounded brave old sloop of war and once more those glens and forests of st lucia remind us of sir john moore and sir ralph abercrombie who fought not merely the french but the brigands negroes liberated by the revolution of seventeen ninety two 
but the good ship must proceed and as british naval interests are under consideration let her bows be turned to bermuda a colony a fortress and a prison and where england owns an extensive floating dock dockyards and workshops trollope says that its geological formation is mysterious it seems to be made of soft white stone composed mostly of little shells so soft indeed that you might cut bermuda up with a handsaw and people are cutting up bermuda with handsaws one little island that on which the convicts are established has been altogether so cut up already when i visited it two fat convicts were working away slowly at the last fragment bermuda is the crater of an extinct volcano and is surrounded by little islets of which there is one for every day of the year in a space of twenty by three miles these are surrounded again by reefs and rocks and navigation is risky were the bermudas the scene of ariel's tricks they were first discovered in fifteen twenty two by bermudes a spaniard and shakespeare seems to have heard of them for he speaks of the still vexed bermudes trollope says that there is more of the breed of caliban in the islands than of ariel though caliban did not relish working for his master more than the bermudian of to-day there was an amount of energy about him entirely wanting in the existing islanders there are two towns st george and hamilton on different islands the former is the headquarters of the military and the second that of the governor it is the summer headquarters of the admiral of the station the islands are in general wonderfully fertile and will with any ordinary cultivation give two crops of many vegetables in the year it has the advantage of the tropics plus those of more temperate climes for tomatoes onions beetroot sweet potatoes early potatoes as well as all kinds of fruits from oranges lemons and bananas to small berries it is not surpassed by any place in the world while arrow root is one of its specialties it is the early market garden for new york shipbuilding is carried on as the islands abound in a stunted cedar good for the purpose when it can be found large enough the working population are almost all negroes and are lazy to a degree but the whites are not much better and the climate is found to produce great lassitude it is the sea round the bermudas more than the islands themselves perhaps that give its beauty everywhere the water is wonderfully clear and transparent while the land is broken up into narrow inlets and headlands and bays and promontories nooks and corners running here and there in capricious and ever varying forms the oleander with their bright blossoms are so abundant almost to the water's edge that the bermudas might be called the oleander isles the bermuda convict in trollope's time seemed to be rather better off than most english labourers he had a pound of meat good meat too while the bermudians were tugging at their teeth with tough morsels he had a pound and three-quarters of bread more than he wanted a pound of vegetables tea and sugar a glass of grog per diem tobacco money allowed and eight hours labor he was infinitely better off than most sailors of the merchant service st george the military station of the colony 
commands the only entrance among the islands suitable for the passage of large vessels the narrow and intricate channel which leads to its landlocked haven being defended by strong batteries the lagoons and passages and sea canals between the little islands make communication by water as necessary as in venice every one keeps a boat or cedar canoe he will often do his business on one island and have his residence on a second mark twain has a wonderful facility for description and his latest articles random notes of an idle excursion contain a picturesque account of the bermudas and more particularly of hamilton the leading port he says that he found it a wonderfully white town white as marble snow flower it was says he a town compacted together upon the sides and tops of a cluster of small hills its outlying borders fringed off and thinned away among the cedar forests and there was no woody distance of curving coast or leafy islet sleeping on the dimpled painted sea but was flecked with shining white points half-concealed houses peeping out of the foliage there was an ample pier of heavy masonry upon this under shelter were some thousands of barrels containing that product which has carried the fame of bermuda to many lands the potato with here and there an onion that last sentence is facetious for they grow at least two onions in bermuda to one potato the onion is the pride and the joy of bermuda it is her jewel her gem of gems in her conversation her pulpit her literature it is her most frequent and eloquent figure in bermudian metaphor it stands for perfection perfection absolute the bermudian weeping over the departed exhausts praise when he says he was an onion the bermudian extolling the living hero bankrupts applause when he says he is an onion the bermudian setting his son upon the stage of life to dare and do for himself climaxes all counsel supplication admonition comprehends all ambition when he says be an onion when the steamer arrives at the pier the first question asked is not concerning great war or political news but concerns only the price of onions all the writers agree that for tomatoes onions and vegetables generally the bermudas are unequalled they have been called as noted before the market gardens of new york jack who is fortunate enough to be on the west india and north american stations must be congratulated the country roads says the clever writer above quoted curve and wind hither and thither in the delightfulest way unfolding pretty surprises at every turn billowy masses of oleander that seem to float out from behind distant projections like the pink cloud banks of sunset sudden plunges among cottages and gardens life and activity followed by as sudden plunges into the sombre twilight and stillness of the woods glittering visions of white fortresses 
and beacon towers pictured against the sky on remote hilltops glimpses of shining green sea caught for a moment through opening headlands then lost again more woods in solitude and by and by another turn lays bare without warning the full sweep of the inland ocean enriched with its bars of soft colour and graced with its wandering sails take any road you please you may depend upon it you will not stay in it a half mile your road is everything that a road ought to be it is bordered with trees and with strange plants and flowers it is shady and pleasant or sunny and still pleasant it carries you by the prettiest and peacefulest and most homelike of homes and through stretches of forest that lie in a deep hush sometimes and sometimes are alive with the music of birds it curves always which is a continual promise whereas straight roads reveal everything at a glance and kill interest there is enough of variety sometimes you are in the level open with marshes thick grown with flag lances that are ten feet high on the one hand and potato and onion orchards on the other next you are on a hilltop with the ocean and the islands spread around you presently the road winds through a deep cut shut in by perpendicular walls thirty or forty feet high marked with the oddest and abruptest stratum lines suggestive of sudden and eccentric old upheavals and garnished with here and there a clinging adventurous flower and here and there a dangling vine and by and by your way is along the sea edge and you may look down a fathom or two through the transparent water and watch the diamond-like flash and play of the light upon the rocks and sands on the bottom until you are tired of it if you were so constituted as to be able to get tired of it but as there are spots in the sun and the brightest lights throw the deepest shadows everywhere so on the bermuda coast there are in its rare storms dangers of no small kind among its numerous reefs and rocks the north rock in particular is the monument which marks the grave of many a poor sailor in bygone days at the present time however tugboats and the use of steam generally have reduced the perils of navigation among the hundreds of islands which constitute the bermuda group to a minimum the recent successful trip of cleopatra's needle in a vessel of unique construction will recall that of the bermuda floating dock which it will be remembered was towed across the atlantic and placed in its present position bermuda being from a naval point of view the most important port on the north american and west indian stations it had long been felt to be an absolute necessity that a dock capable of holding the largest vessels of war should be built in some part of the island after many futile attempts to accomplish this object owing to the porous nature of the rock of which the island is formed it was determined that messieurs campbell johnstone and company of north woolwich should construct a floating dock according to their patented inventions those built by them for carthagena saigon and Callao, having been completely successful the dimensions of the dock for bermuda 
which was afterwards named after that island are as follows length over all three hundred eighty one feet length between caissons three hundred thirty feet breadth over all one hundred twenty four feet breadth between sides eighty four feet depth inside fifty three feet five inches she is divided into eight longitudinal watertight compartments and these again into sets of compartments called respectively load on and balance chambers several small compartments were also made for the reception of the pumps the machinery for moving capstans and cranes all of which were worked by steam she is powerful and large enough to lift an ironclad having a displacement of ten thousand four hundred tons and could almost dock the great eastern the building of the bermuda was begun in august eighteen sixty six she was launched in september eighteen sixty eight and finally completed in may eighteen sixty nine for the purposes of navigation two light wooden bridges were thrown across her on the foremost of which stood her compass and on the after the steering apparatus she was also supplied with three lighthouses and several semaphores for signalling to the men-of-war which had her in tow either by night or day in shape she is something like a round-bottomed canal boat with the ends cut off from an interesting account of her voyage from sheerness to bermuda by one of those on board we gather the following information respecting her trip her crew numbered eighty-two hands under a staff commander r n there were also on board an assistant naval surgeon an admiralty commissioner and the writer of the book from which these particulars are taken the first rendezvous of the bermuda was to be at the nore on the afternoon of the twenty third of june eighteen sixty nine the bermuda was towed to the nore by four ordinary thames tugs accompanied by h m s s terrible medusa buzzard and wildfire on arriving at the nore off the lightship she found the northumberland waiting for her the tugs cast off and a hawser was passed to the northumberland which took her in tow as far as knob channel the terrible bringing up astern the angicourt was now picked up and passing a hawser on board the northumberland took the lead in the maritime tandem a hawser was now passed to the terrible from the stern of the bermuda so that towing that vessel she might be kept from swaying from side to side the medusa steamed on the quarter of the northumberland and the buzzard acted as a kind of floating outrider to clear the way the north foreland was passed the same evening at a speed of four knots an hour everything went well until the twenty-fifth when she lost sight of land off the start point late in the afternoon of that day on the twenty-eighth she was halfway across the bay of biscay when encountering a slight sea and a freshening wind she showed her first tendency to roll an accomplishment in which she was afterwards beaten by all her companions although the prognostications about her talents in this direction had been of the most lugubrious description it must be understood that the bottom of her hold so to speak was only some ten feet under the surface of the water and that her hollow sides towered some sixty feet above it on the top of each gunwale were wooden houses for the officers with gardens in front and behind in which mignonette 
sweet peas and other english garden flowers grew and flourished until they encountered the parching heat of the tropics the crew was quartered in the sides of the vessel and the top of the gunwales or quarter-decks as they might be called communicated with the lower decks by means of a ladder fifty-three feet long End of chapter 11 part 2